We'll hear argument next in number 9079, Richard B. K. versus Bremer Erler and Kentucky Board of Elections. Spectators are reminded that the court remains in session. There's to be no talking inside the courtroom. Mr. Dyke, you may proceed whenever you're ready. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case presents an important question under Section 1988 of the Civil Rights Laws, which allows a reasonable attorney's fee to prevailing parties. The petitioner in this case is an attorney who, proceeding pro se in the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Kentucky, succeeded in having two state statutes restricting uh, access to the ballot declared unconstitutional. And one of those had been declared unconstitutional four years earlier and had been reenacted by the state in its identical form despite the court's ruling. In, 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 the, in this, in this case, case, yeah. To, to, he was, a, was he a candidate or something? Yes, he was a candidate for President of the United States. He has, has run for various offices on a Democratic ticket a, a number of times and mm-hmm. has received uh, uh, access to the ballot in a number of states and, and a fair amount of uh, uh, media coverage for a, uh, uh, a minor party candidate and for a minor candidate for the Democratic nomination. Uh, he, um, uh, in, in doing this, uh, fulfilled the purposes of the civil rights laws, uh, and that is he acted as a private attorney general uh, vindicating uh, not only his own rights, representing not only his own rights, uh, but those of uh, other people in the United States. Was it ever established, Mr. Dyke, that he was admitted to the bar in the Eastern District of Kentucky or Western District, wherever it was? He didn't need to be admitted to the bar pro hac vice. He he was not a a regular member of the bar, but he did not need to seek a pro hac vice admission because under the rules of the Eastern District, he was allowed uh, to proceed without doing that since he was pro se. He, he is a member of the bar of the states of Florida and Ohio. So he was enabled to proceed in Kentucky, not because he was admitted to the bar, but because he was pro se. Well, he could have, he could have proceeded uh, uh, either to, to seek admission pro hac vice or to proceed under this rule. It wasn't necessary for him to, to do the pro hac vice because the rule allowed it anyway. So, at any rate, he, he was not admitted to practice as an attorney, either for this case or generally in the federal court in Kentucky. That is correct. He was not. Uh, now, Mr. Dyke, you, you don't take the position that all pro se litigants are eligible for attorney's fees, just those who are attorneys? Uh, that is correct, uh, Justice O'Connor. We take the position that while some of the purposes of the statute would be served by allowing attorney's fees to pro se litigants who are not attorneys, that the language of the statute in referring to an attorney assumes a licensed member of the bar. Well, the statute also refers to prevailing parties, which might more easily be read to cover all than just attorneys. Uh, I thought it was curious that you limited your argument. 
I, I, uh, Justice O'Connor, I would agree that the, uh, there are many of the policies of this statute which would be fulfilled by allowing attorney's fees to uh, non-attorney pro se litigants. But there is the reference in the statute to attorney, and there is the reference in the legislative history wishing to uh, uh, involve attorneys in these cases. Well, if you, if you look to the language, the phrase attorney's fee, um, isn't the more natural uh, meaning of that uh, to presuppose that there's an attorney-client relationship? Uh, I think not, Justice O'Connor. I think the reference is to the fee that the court allows to the attorney in the case. And, of course, the statute uh, comes to the court today with the gloss uh, placed on it by both the Blum and the Blanchard cases, which have uh, specifically held that this statute does not contemplate cost-based recovery. In other words, it does not make any difference under this statute whether there is a paying relationship between attorney and client. Indeed, if one looks at the legislative history, it seems that one of the clear purposes of the statute uh, was to uh, uh, award fees to individuals who were not charging their clients for their services. So despite the reference in the statute to the word fee, it is now clear under this Court's earlier decisions that uh, the payment of an actual payment of a fee is not what the statute means. True, but it may still contemplate an attorney-client relationship. I think, uh, I think not, uh, Justice O'Connor, because not only does the statutory language uh, 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 not drafted in a way uh, that requires representation, and I think it would have been relatively easy uh, for Congress to do that if it had intended to do it, but the policies of the statute are fully served in the case of an individual attorney who is proceeding pro se. First of all, uh, the, the statute is designed... What about that old saw that... Uh he who represents himself has a fool for a client. Well, I realize Congress had in mind that people should get attorneys in order to vindicate civil rights causes of action. I think there is no question but that Congress wanted attorneys to be involved. There is no question that Congress, uh, to some extent, uh, to a significant extent, was motivated by the desire to provide attorneys to people who could not afford them. But it did not draft the statute in that way. For example, it could have said, and it had the Fair Housing Act before it as an example at the time that it passed this statute, it could have awarded fees only to people who were, quote, unable to assume the, the uh, payment of the fees themselves. It didn't do that. It acted more broadly, and it acted more broadly because it had broad purposes in enacting this statute. It was concerned that without private enforcement of the civil rights laws, that the civil rights laws might become a dead letter. It was actively uh, 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 seeking to encourage civil rights litigation by awarding these fees, not to discourage it. Uh, and again and again, uh, this Court has said, and the legislative history has said, uh, that that was this central purpose, to encourage these suits to be brought to vindicate the civil rights not only of the plaintiffs in the cases, but of other people whom the plaintiffs represented. Uh, at the same time, there was a, a, a lesser purpose to uh, to some extent deter uh, the defendants in these cases from raising uh, defenses to meritorious claims. Uh, and for these, uh, these purposes are fully served by uh, cases in which an attorney is proceeding pro se. Uh, it is also quite clear, we think, and, and, and uh, conceded uh, by the other side, by both the respondent and by the United States, that uh, uh, pro se organizations uh, proceeding uh, under this statute are entitled to recover an attorney's fee. 
Um, and uh, <clears throat> I think the same purposes of the statute which lead to that result uh, should lead to the result of a pro se individual being covered by the statute as well. And if this court were to rule otherwise, I think there would be <clears throat> extremely difficult line-drawing problems. I mean, you could have uh, uh, one case in which uh, an individual represented a corporation or a nonprofit corporation. You could have a case in which an individual uh, was a member of a voluntary association which was bringing the suit. Or as in some of the cases, you could have an individual who was representing a partnership. Or in this case, in all of those cases, uh, the the entity is larger than the attorney who's a, who's appear, appearing before the court on its behalf. I think there there are uh, in the examples that I've given so far that is true, Mr. Chief Justice. But the, uh, Mr. K could also have uh, sued in the name of the K for President Committee, uh, which may consist of one or two people. Uh, the fact is that uh, there may be, uh, by, by introducing a distinction between organizations and individuals, I think we're suggesting that some very difficult line-drawing problems could be introduced, uh, line-drawing which isn't justified by the purposes of the statute, and that we would uh, end up, uh, as this Court uh, said in Hensley, uh, should not be the case, we could end up with uh, other litigations to try to determine whether it's an organizational situation or an individual situation. Mr. Dyke, uh, what is your answer to the situation where House Counsel represents a nonprofit organization? Uh, That uh, does happen with some frequency. Uh, It was something that they were apparently aware of in passing the statute. The references to it in the hearings, and there's a specific reference to it in the House report, and it clearly says that under those circumstances that the organization is entitled to recover the attorney's fee. Uh, and and uh, the uh, amicus brief of Public Citizen has pointed out how often that occurs and how important it is. And as I understand that point to be conceded by the other side, that if it's a nonprofit corporation, if it has a corporate form, uh, that, it, that it is within the statute and that the attorney's fee can be recovered, even though it is another pro se situation. Well, I suppose organizations, corporations, and other organizations have to be represented by counsel. I mean, they can't come in as, as a corporation and represent themselves. They have to have an attorney there, house counsel or otherwise, don't they? Well, I think, Justice O'Connor, that is true in the case of a corporation, but in the case of a voluntary association or a partnership, which should also qualify for this organizational status. Uh, 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 they don't have to uh, proceed uh, by an attorney. They can proceed by a member of the organization. And if it so happens that they proceed uh, being represented by an attorney who is a member of the organization, uh, it seems difficult, very difficult, to distinguish between that situation and the corporate situation, and very difficult to believe that Congress could have intended to do that. Um, is that, for, is that for certain, Mr. Dyke? I'm not sure. Do you know of any cases where a partnership appears pro se? Yes, there, there is uh, one of the leading uh, District of Columbia mm-hmm. cases, uh, D.C. Circuit cases here, uh, the Cuneo case, involved a case in which the partnership appeared uh, pro se and Mr. Cuneo represented them. And the D.C. Circuit uh, held that he was entitled to fees. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these things do happen. Uh, and and uh, if, uh, if the court uh, uh, tries to draw a line, between individuals and organizations, I fear it will be a very difficult line uh, for the courts to administer in practice, not only because these situations do exist, but it would create an incentive for people to create an organization 
uh, for the purpose of getting the attorney's fees. Now, the Solicitor General tells us, don't worry, we'll pierce the corporate veil, we'll go behind that. But, but there again, I think one is just getting into all sorts of, of uh, difficult litigation over the question of attorney's fees. Um, we are told, we are told by the other side that there are purposes of the statute which would be defeated uh, if uh, attorney's fees were allowed here. It is said, for example, by the <coughs> uh, uh, brief of the state of Hawaii and others as amicus, that if attorney's fees are allowed here, it will devastate the state treasuries. And that for that reason, the court uh, should not construe 1988 as allowing attorney's fees in this situation. The difficulty with that argument, of course, is it will devastate the state treasuries only, only if the uh, uh, petitioners, the plaintiffs in these cases, prevail. And if they prevail, they are serving the very purpose of the Civil Rights Act that led Congress to award of an attorney's fee. Uh, they also argue that the reason that Congress wanted to get attorneys involved uh, in these civil rights cases was to perform a sifting function, that they would sit there and decide which cases were meritorious and ought to be brought in which cases were not meritorious and should not be brought, and they somehow suggest that a pro se attorney isn't going to perform the same sifting function. The difficulty here, again, is that there simply isn't a single statement in the legislative history suggesting that Congress enacted 1988 or brought attorneys into the process in order to perform the sifting function. Well, the, the whole idea of our profession uh, is that that degree of insulation and independence and professionalism prevails because there's a distance between you and the client. And you would concede on the one hand that a pro se who's not an attorney uh, cannot get the fees, and yet you'd create for the legal profession this little option where they could represent themselves. Uh, and, and, it, and it seems to me that it somewhat uh, detracts from the purpose of the Congress in asking for professional representation. The problem, Justice Kennedy, that the Congress faced in 1976 after this court's decision in Alieska was that they thought these cases would not be brought because they could not be brought uh, based on the traditional attorney-client relationship in which the client retained the attorney and agreed to pay the attorney. Uh, Congress felt, in fact, so strongly about this that they concluded that if they did not provide for an award of attorney's fees, that the civil rights laws would not be enforced. And it is clear, I think, that pro se attorneys, individuals proceeding pro se as attorneys, have made valuable contributions in this area. This petitioner did in this particular case uh, the briefs that we have filed. And well, I suppose you could say the same about some pro se's I, who are not attorneys. I agree with you, Justice Kennedy. That is quite true, that there are purposes of this statute which would be served by awarding fees to individuals who are not attorneys. And uh, if I were uh, to approach this as a legislative matter, I would completely agree that a, there was a great deal to be said for that. But uh, there is the, the, the word attorney in the statute. There is the reference in the legislative history to the desire to uh, bring uh, expert individuals into this. Uh, and for that reason, uh, we think that the language and the history of the statute uh, suggests that it, it falls short of awarding it to a non-attorney pro se, a, a result which has been reached uh, by many of the circuits which have nonetheless agreed uh, that a pro se attorney should recover.
Mr. Dyke, I, I don't understand how you make that distinction. As Justice O'Connor points out, the the person who gets the award is simply described in the statute as the prevailing party, which would include anybody, attorneys or not. The award is described as attorney's fees, uh, a reasonable attorney's fee. Uh, but you're ignoring the word fee. There isn't any fee. Nobody's paid any money to anybody. So why not ignore the word attorneys, too? I mean, it's just a description of what the money is for, not, not a description of what, <laughs> what the function actually is. Uh, I think I'm not, a, uh, uh, Justice Scalia, ignoring the word fee. I think that based on this Court's decisions in Blum and Blanchard that I read the word fee as referring to the payment that is made to the prevailing uh, party. And I approach the statute uh, uh, with the understanding from this Court's decisions that it is, does not provide for cost-based recovery. But I also approach the statute not only looking at the word attorney, but looking at the legislative history, which suggests this desire to have attorneys involved. There was an apparent conclusion that attorneys bring valuable contributions to these cases. Uh, Now, uh, a number of members of the Court have suggested that that non-attorneys may bring valuable contributions. I don't dispute that. I I, uh, say again that I agree that non-attorneys may make very valuable contributions to these cases and that there are many uh, reasons for arguing that they should also be covered. And I agree that if you look at the words prevailing party instead of attorney's fee, that maybe it is possible to reach the conclusion under this statute that it, that, um, it covers non-attorneys. That, that issue, of course, is not before the Court today. But uh, uh, we, I'm, I'm giving you uh, my best uh, understanding of what I think Congress intended, and I think that Congress probably did not intend to include uh, pro se non-attorneys within the statute, even though there are strong reasons for doing it. Um, Mr. Chief Justice, unless there are further questions, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time. Very well, Mr. Dyke. Uh, Ms. Shadle, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. The question presented in this case is whether a pro se litigant who is an attorney is eligible for attorney's fees under 42 U.S.C. Section 1988. The language of 42 U.S.C. Section 1988 indicates that pro se litigants, whether attorneys or not, are not eligible for attorney's fees. The language of that statute provides that the court, in its discretion, may allow the prevailing party, other than the United States, a reasonable attorney's fee as part of the costs. The issue before the court is to determine the meaning of the phrase attorney's fee as part of the costs. In examining the definition of attorney's fee, we believe that it becomes clear that uh, pro se litigants, whether or not attorneys, are not eligible for fees. The phrase attorney's fee is defined as meaning charge to client for services rendered, and examples given hourly fee, flat fee, contingency fee. Looking at that definition, charge to client for services rendered, indicates that there is a presupposition that there are two parties, that there is an attorney on one hand and the attorney client on the other. But it also assumes that there is a charge. And we've ignored that assumption because we allow pro bono attorneys to, or we, we allow the recovery of fees for pro bono attorneys. Yes, Your Honor, but we... So if we ignore the one, why can't we ignore the other? 
We believe that if you look at the words in the entire context, attorney's fee as part of costs, that it would indicate that there is an attorney-client relationship from which a fee arrangement springs. Now, the fee arrangement may ultimately be that there might not be an actual paying relationship other than some kind of contingency fee arrangement, such as contingency fee, uh, if we lose the case, there are no attorney's fees paid. If we win the case, attorney's fees will be paid if attorney's fees are recovered. We do believe that the language looked at in its entire context indicates that there is of the requirement of an attorney-client relationship from which springs a fee arrangement. We believe that that is... What about the, the uh, House Council situation or the pro bono organization situation? We believe that there is still the fee arrangement. In-house counsel is, in fact, acting as retained counsel by the organization that has hired it. Uh, In-house counsel has paid the retainer of the yearly salary and benefits to be uh, there for the organization and to represent the organization in any matters that the organization requires, much as uh, an outside counsel might be put on retainer for the same purpose. Uh, we believe that that is the kind of uh, is a kind of fee arrangement that would qualify as part of this attorney-client relationship. Uh, we believe that that also is true in the situation of a pro bono attorney representing a client. Uh, that uh, relationship also has a fee arrangement, much like a contingency fee arrangement. If the case is lost, there are no fees that are paid. If the case is won, fees are paid based on whatever attorney's fees are recovered. That is a fee arrangement uh, that stems from the attorney-client relationship, the attorney representing his client, as anticipated by the language in the statute itself. I ask this question. Supposing in this case the presidential candidate had also put on the complaint, the also represented a voter in Kentucky to get not only the candidate's point of view but the voter's point of view for standing. Fees in that case? If the petitioner were representing someone other than himself, then we believe he would have qualified for fees for that particular representation. But for matters in which he was representing himself, we would believe that he would not qualify. How do you differentiate if they have a common interest? Say, say the vice presidential candidate was plaintiff also. He represents X and Y presidential and vice presidential candidate respectively, and he's one of the two. Does he get a fee? It may be in that situation that when the court is asked to examine the, the facts connected with it, that it might not be possible uh, to make a distinction. If the common interests were such that everything the attorney did was on behalf of the clients together, you might not be able to make a differentiation. Which means he would or would not get a fee? It means he would if he were representing a party other than himself. I see. Because there would, in fact, be an attorney-client relationship and a fee arrangement that would stem from that. We you say, Michelle, there's, the statute uh, contemplates an, an attorney-client relationship, which will ultimately give rise to some sort of fee arrangement. How, how does the existence of that sort of a relationship advance the purpose of the statute? I mean, more so than, say, an arrangement just where the, if the attorney is pro C, he can get a fee. The language used by Congress in the legislative history indicates that Congress was concerned with enabling individuals who might not be able to afford to hire attorneys and get into court the means by which they would be able to hire an attorney to represent him or her in, in the court in order to vindicate his or her civil rights. 
Congress' intent uh, seems to us to be that encouragement, uh, that giving individuals the ability to hire attorneys to represent them, and was in fact contemplating the existence of the attorney-client relationship that we are describing. Are you arguing that uh, that uh, because uh, this man was a lawyer, uh, he didn't need to go out and find a good lawyer? Is that it? And therefore, con uh, Congress uh, didn't intend to have him compensated because he didn't need to go out and hunt a lawyer. Is that it? We would not say it that way. We believe that Congress meant to treat all pro se litigants the same in that they were encouraging everyone who believes that he or she should file a civil rights action uh, to go and find an attorney to represent him or her in that lawsuit. And that would include attorneys. If attorneys decide to proceed pro se, they are making the decision in the same way that any other litigant might make that decision. But the congressional intent was to give individuals the means by which uh, they could hire attorneys to represent them. Well, uh, unless, a, unless a, a pro se lawyer gets paid, uh, I suppose he'd be less likely to bring a civil rights suit because he's... Uh, while he's uh, pursuing it, he can't take any other clients. We don't believe he would be any less likely to bring the suit than any other uh, individual who's contemplating it. Certainly the attorney always has the opportunity to that. hire. The, uh, the non-lawyer pro se fellow uh, hasn't got that problem of, of, uh, or may not have that problem of paying the rent uh, and uh, not having any, more, any clients not being able to uh, serve any other client. It might apply to, to some pro se litigants and might not apply to others. For example, if there are pro se litigants who have professions and who do work, well, any time... Well, it's likely to, if a, if a lawyer, if a fellow is making his living as a lawyer, it's likely that, uh, that he, well, he normally doesn't take cases that uh, uh, will interfere with his practice. Yes, uh, that's true, Your Honor, but we do so not he believe... he won't be likely to be uh, going out pursuing uh, civil rights cases if he's not going to get paid. That's right. He might not pursue them himself, but he has the same option that every other citizen in the country has, as encouraged by Congress, and that is to hire an attorney to represent him if he decides that he should file a civil rights claim. Congress has put every citizen in the country on the same plane, the same starting point, uh, with its concern about hiring an attorney to represent him if he's filing a civil rights action. Attorneys certainly have the capability of finding attorneys to represent them if they wish to bring these actions and do not wish to spend the time on it themselves as far as litigating the action. Uh, and we well, believe... There's always a risk. Actually, there's always a risk of... Uh, of uh, of, uh, losing, you're always you go out and hire an attorney, and you, and you have to pay him maybe. Uh, <clears throat> win, lose, or draw, and you uh, if you lose, you're going to have to pay him anyway. That certainly is the possibility. A Congress intent in in enacting this statute obviously was not to to. Uh, award fees to anyone, whether or not prevailing. Fees are available to prevailing parties only, and that is true um, for anyone that hires an attorney to represent him or her in these actions. 
We believe if you compare the wording attorney's fees as part of cost with the uh, meaning of the phrase pro se, it becomes even clearer that Congress was contemplating the attorney-client relationship. Pro se means appearing for oneself, as in the case of one who does not retain a lawyer and appears for himself in court. Someone who is appearing pro se is doing it for himself on his own behalf. Someone who is who is qualified for attorney's fees is an attorney who is acting on behalf of someone else, his client. The legislative history supports this conclusion. Congress' main concern was with citizens who might be unable to assert their civil rights because they could not afford to hire attorneys to represent them in court. Congress expressed this concern uh, in several places in the legislative history and, and in one place stating that it was very concerned about citizens who must sue to enforce the law but who had little or no money in which to hire an attorney. That was the concern that Congress, Congress was addressing in enacting 42 U.S.C. Section 1988. It very much wanted to enable citizens to hire attorneys to represent them in these actions. Nowhere in the legislative history does Congress talk about any intent in allowing pro se litigants, whether or not attorneys, to uh, be awarded attorney's fees in this kind of action. I ask you a question. I, would it make any difference if it were a class action and the litigant was proceeding on behalf of a class and was the named plaintiff and also the lawyer? We don't believe that it would make a difference if you mean if the attorney should get attorney's fees for representing clients, we believe that in that situation, the attorney would be eligible for fees. Because of the class membership. He, he does, in fact, represent parties other than himself and has the attorney-client relationship uh, that the statute contemplates. Another example occurs to me. I remember there's a, a Shockman case in Chicago. Shockman was a lawyer, but he was a member of a law firm. I think probably everybody in the law firm worked on the case. Would these partners be, under your view, his partners would be entitled to a fee, but he would not. Assuming from your question that the partners were representing him uh, and there was the attorney-client relationship, no. we believe that the partners but would he be could, eligible. He probably couldn't count his own hours working on the case to, to, uh, as part of the fee. We would agree that he should not be able to be compensated no. for his own representation of himself. Yeah. The petitioner has argued that pro se litigants should be um, awarded fees because organizations are mentioned in the legislative history and that organizations that proceed pro se are allowed fees and so pro se uh, individuals should receive fees. Uh, we do not think that that argument uh, is persuasive because organizations do not, in fact, proceed pro se. And indeed, the organizations uh, that Congress specifically mentions in the legislative history were all represented by counsel. Uh, they were all part of an attorney-client relationship, uh, and the uh, intent of the Congress would seem by the language that it used in the legislative history to indicate that it was still looking at the attorney-client relationship. Uh, organizations, indeed, are represented by other parties uh, as a general rule, uh, whether the, the attorney is an in-house counsel or outside counsel, and certainly that was true in all of the specific situations that Congress was examining in determining uh, the wording of 42 U.S.C. Section 1988. You would apply that to all organizations, including partnerships. You, you disagree with Mr. Dyke as to whether a partnership can appear pro se? 
It's, I don't know if courts allow partnerships to proceed pro se uh, without a licensed attorney there in the courtroom for them. My experience has been that uh, there has always been a licensed attorney uh, representing uh, these organizations and these partnerships. Um, but if there is someone who is not a licensed attorney representing uh, a partnership, then we would say that there cannot be an attorney-client relationship because there is not even an attorney. Uh, we, would, we would say that uh, we would agree with petitioner that at the least the statutory language would require there to be an attorney involved in the representation. Well, would you, uh, a law partnership uh, where a lawyer represents the partnership, uh, would you treat the partnership and that lawyer like a, uh, like a uh, corporation? Yes, we would. If the lawyer is representing the partnership and there is the well, attorney-client relationship. He's a partner in the firm. Yes. We believe that if the partnership or organization is greater than the individual that is representing the partnership or organization, then that there is an attorney-client relationship and that that is what uh, the language and the intent uh, for 42 U.S.C. would require and uh, fees would be applicable uh, and the individual would be eligible for attorney's fees for that reason. Uh, what, what, uh, what courts have been against you? The Ninth Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit uh, have are held. The, are those are the only three circuits ruled on it? There are only three circuits that have ruled on this specific question. Mm-hmm. Although the, uh, the 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 Duncan case um, involved a defendant uh, obtaining attorney's fees, and so the question uh, is enough different that it's it's difficult to know if that court would also make the same ruling for a, a plaintiff that was proceeding pro se. We do not believe that uh, Congress's intent to foster private enforcement actions is in any way undercut by the decision that we are asking this court to make in this case. It's clear that Congress did not intend to foster all enforcement actions. If it had that intent, it would have, in fact, awarded fees to all parties that brought suits, whether or not the parties prevailed. Clearly, Congress's intent to encourage enforcement actions was limited by the means that it adopted for this statute, and those means being that attorney's fees, that prevailing parties would be eligible for attorney's fees if, in fact, there were an attorney-client relationship, an attorney representing another person, that attorney's client. We believe that the language of the statute and the legislative intent are clear that Pro se litigants, whether or not they are attorneys, are ineligible for attorney's fees under 42 U.S.C. Section 1988. And we ask this Court to affirm the decision of the Sixth Circuit. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Shadle. Uh, Mr. Long, we'll hear now from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Let me begin with uh, a point Mr. Dyke raised. He referred to pro se organizations, and there was also a question whether a partnership can litigate pro se. Uh, Our understanding is that the general rule is that organizations cannot litigate pro se. That is certainly true of corporations, and we think that is the majority rule. Uh, as to partnerships and also as to unincorporated associations. Litigate pro se because the corporation can't come into court? Is that it? it could not appear through its president or through some officer of the corporation. It has to hire 
a member of the bar to what represent What if its vice president is a lawyer? I think uh, that then the courts have uh, allowed the uh, attorney. They didn't go out and hire anybody. They, that was just part of his job. Well, that would be the in-house counsel situation, and that is certainly okay. I might add. How about a voluntary organization? Uh, uh, say an environmental organization or, you know, any one of the groups that, that litigate. Uh, if they're simply an association, uh, are they allowed to appear in court by one of their members who is not a lawyer? We think the general rule is they are not, and the, the cases on this are collected under 28 U.S. Code 1654, which is a statute we did not cite in our brief, but that is a statute that generally gives all parties in federal courts a right to conduct their own cases personally uh, or by counsel. So uh, under your view, an organization would have to be represented by an attorney, but it could be an attorney who was also a member of the organization. Yes, that's exactly right, Mr. Chief Justice. We think the language of Section 1988, which provides that a prevailing party other than the United States may recover a reasonable attorney's fee as part of the costs, answers the question presented in this case. The word attorney ordinarily denotes a person who is both licensed to practice law and who acts as the representative or agent of a client. Members of the bar generally do represent clients, but that does not mean that a lawyer who litigates a case pro se is functioning as an attorney. Standard dictionaries define attorney as the agent or representative of another. And representation is the essence of phrases such as attorney in fact and power of attorney. We also think other language in Section 1988 reinforces the conclusion that Congress used attorney in its usual sense. Let me ask you a question there. Supposing you had an attorney who was a beneficiary of a trust with a lot of money and he brought suit in his own name as a beneficiary to surcharge the trustees for wrongful action of some kind and he collected a million dollars or so. Fee or no fee, do you suppose, is a matter of normal common law approach to that? He is the beneficiary he's of the trust? He's both a beneficiary. He brought an action on behalf of all beneficiaries. Well, I suppose you could say, say he's the sole beneficiary. I have to make him the sole beneficiary. I think in that case, he's, it is simply a pro se example. If he were the trustee, he might be uh, acting on behalf of the beneficiary or the sestui, and then he might well be in No, no, I'm thinking of an action where he, he creates a common fund case, where he creates a fund for the trust, and he's the individual beneficiary. If he is the sole beneficiary, I think our position would be that he's not entitled to a fee. I mean, I should add in... I suppose in most of those cases that there would be a... He, in effect, would be doing a service for the trust as a whole. Yes, and in that case, he might well get a fee. And I should add in general that Mr. Dyke rests a great deal of his argument on the uh, proposition that this distinction between organizations and pro se litigants would be very difficult to uh, apply in practice. And first of all, we think the statute requires the distinction, so the difficulty of it is not really an issue. But we also think uh, in the ordinary run of cases, it's not going to be difficult to apply uh, it, it is the kind of determination courts make routinely, for example, under this uh, statute uh, 1654, also in determining whether there's an attorney-client relationship or who the uh, attorney represents in a corporate setting. It's the kind of question that courts can answer quite easily in the uh, borderline or difficult cases that may arise. 
but in addition uh, to the requirement of an attorney, there's a requirement of an attorney's fee as part of the costs. And a pro se litigant cannot pay himself a fee. A pro se lawyer also incurs no costs for legal services other than opportunity costs. And this court has never held that opportunity costs are compensable as attorney's fees. Now, it is correct, as Petitioner observes, that organizations represented by in-house counsel, as well as clients represented by attorneys on a pro bono basis, are eligible for fee awards under Section 1988. But this does not foreclose reliance on the statutory language authorizing an award of fees as a part of costs for two reasons. First, organizations actually incur costs for representation by in-house attorneys, although the costs may be in the form of a flat fee, that is, a salary. And lawyers who represent clients pro bono have a fee arrangement with the client, even if it is to waive the fee, and more typically, the arrangement is in the nature of a contingent fee, that is, to recover any uh, fee award uh, under Section 1988. Second, the cases awarding attorneys' fees to in-house counsel uh, rest on I'm sorry, the second reason is that the awards of fees to uh, organizations rest on the legislative history rather than the language of the statute. And we think the legislative history simply doesn't apply to pro se lawyers because, as we've already argued, pro se lawyers are easily distinguished from organizations. We think the language of Section 1988 answers the question presented in this case but the legislative history reinforces our interpretation of the language. Statements in the legislative history such as, uh, many citizens have little or no money with which to hire a lawyer indicate that Congress had in mind uh, encouraging plaintiffs to obtain legal representation rather than litigating cases on their own. And we think that applies to lawyer litigants as well as to all other litigants. And are finally, uh, awarding attorney's fees to pro se lawyers would not further the purpose of Section 1988, which is to make sure that competent counsel are available to civil rights plaintiffs. At a minimum, uh, it's certainly not necessary to adopt the result petitioner argues for to achieve the purpose of Section 1988, because under the Court of Appeals decision, uh, lawyers have precisely the same ability to vindicate their civil rights as all other litigants. And in fact, they may have a greater ability because if they choose to litigate pro se, they can apply whatever additional skills they have. And we also think, frankly, that encouraging pro se litigation by lawyers would not ensure that competent counsel would be available in civil rights cases. Pro se lawyers often lack the detachment and objectivity that is necessary for, for effective professional representation. A pro se lawyer may be inclined to focus on the recovery of a fee uh, to the exclusion of a vindication of the merits and pro se litigation. Also. Why would a pro se lawyer be any more apt to do that than any other lawyer? Well, if a lawyer has a client, the lawyer has to consult with the client about various important parts of the litigation, including settlement offers, and presumably the client is going to be particularly interested in achieving the result on the merits. I think. This court's decision in Evans against Jeff D. suggests some of that concern. Section 1988 ensures effective access to the courts for all citizens, including members of the bar. A rule that provides lawyers with additional rights and privileges 
not available to other citizens, with the right to litigate pro se and to recover an attorney's fee, is not justified. Thank you, Mr. Long. Mr. Dyke, do you have rebuttal? You have 12 minutes remaining. As I listen to the United States and the respondent, I, I begin to hear that almost everybody other than an individual can litigate uh, on a pro se basis and recover under the statute. I hear concessions that a voluntary association could do that. I hear a concession, I think, that a partnership could do that. I even hear a concession that an individual could proceed uh, to bring a class action and recover. And I find great difficulty in finding any distinction between those people uh, if they're allowed to recover under Section 1988 and the petitioner in this case who was a prevailing party. He, he prevailed uh, mightily in having these two statutes declared unconstitutional, having to attack one of them for the second time, uh, and allowing him the fee that the statute contemplates fully serves the, the statutory purpose. Uh, one of the things that, that Congress was fully conscious of in enacting this legislation was that it was not easy to get people to take civil rights cases. It was not easy to get people to take civil rights cases even if you provided for a statutory Wouldn't, wouldn't the case. statutory purpose been have served just as well in this case if your client had retained an attorney to represent him and the, then there'd be no question that attorney could get an attorney's fee? Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, that is surely true that the statutory purpose would be served if he had gotten an attorney to represent him. The difficulty is and I think it's reflected in the history of uh, the statute that I'm talking about, is that he may not have been able to get an attorney to represent him, and as a result of but that... But that, that's true of, of any potential civil rights plaintiff. Uh, that is true, but if, if the effect of denying the fee here is to cause this individual petitioner not to bring this suit, the, the purpose of the statute is to feed it. In order to bring this suit, he has to suffer uh, significant opportunity costs. Uh, he may also uh, have paralegal costs, which uh, under this Court's decision in Missouri and Jenkins can only be recovered as part of the attorney's fee. They're not recoverable as part of the costs. So he has the opportunity costs. He has the potential paralegal uh, costs and related costs. And if he can't recover those, uh, he may not uh, bring the suit at all. I think it is not possible to assume that uh, every pro se attorney litigant has the capability to go out and hire an attorney, that that's an option available to him. I think in many cases it is not an option that is available to him. Uh, so Congress intended pro se attorney potential to be more favorably situated with respect to getting attorney's fees than uh, the typical non-lawyer civil rights plaintiff. Uh, as I said earlier, I think there are that the non-lawyer civil rights plaintiff who proceeds pro se uh, can make a significant claim that he is serving the purposes of the statute. And as Justice Scalia pointed out, if you focus on the terminology prevailing party rather than on the word attorney, maybe uh, uh, one concludes that uh, the uh, uh, non-attorney pro se should also recover. But the fact is that uh, uh, the pro se attorney is directly serving every significant purpose that this statute was designed for. He's bringing a meritorious civil rights case. We have to assume that the case is meritorious because there are no fees if he does not prevail. 
And indeed, there are disincentives written into the statute, uh, not only the denial of the fee, but the possibility that the defendant would recover a fee against the plaintiff if the action was unfounded. Uh, th this uh, uh, pro se attorney brings to bear on the litigation his expertise as an attorney uh, 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 to litigate these civil rights cases. Mr. Mr. K, in this particular case, has argued uh, 20 cases in the courts of appeals. Uh, th How many of them were pro se? How many? I, I do not know the answer, but I uh, think a relatively small number of them. Uh, and uh, by seeking out these statutes, by successfully having them declared unconstitutional, uh, by litigating these issues, he is doing exactly what Congress wanted done, and that is that the civil rights of people in this country are vindicated, not just Mr. K's rights, but those of the people in general. Congress wasn't just concerned about the individual litigants. It was concerned about the, uh, the breadth of enforcement. And there is no basis, we suggest, for distinguishing between a situation in which the individual is proceeding pro se and all these other situations where it's conceded that the organization or the class or the partnership is proceeding pro se and would, and would recover fees. Unless there are further questions, I have nothing more. Thank you, Mr. Thank you. Dyke. The case is submitted.